Welcome to this episode of the award-winning Best of the Left podcast in which we shall learn about the ways mass incarceration is coming back to bite the U.S. as jails, prisons, and immigration detention centers are becoming petri dishes for the coronavirus that will help perpetuate the pandemic as well as non-virus-related deaths throughout the population. Now, a quick mental and emotional check-in as non-traditional times call for non-traditional podcasts. It's just me today, and my, my, uh, my check-in is quick. Uh, my check-in is that I'm foggy, uh, and we're going to be talking about this more at length next week, I think, but boy, am I foggy, and I, I was, I was going to give a couple of examples of, of how, the, you know, the work that I do, you know, 95% or more of what I do is not talking to a microphone, right? And it's all kind of like little fiddly bits of, you know, tasks, and switching between them and the whole process of doing anything feels like going for a jog through molasses it's just agonizing to try to remember okay what was i gonna do next okay that's what i was gonna do how do i do that again okay right that's how i do that i was, I was gonna give an example or two but it turns out i just gave myself another one that little intro, that single sentence intro you just heard me read, it took me like five tries to get through that without fumbling and stumbling all over myself because I just can't get my brain to connect to my mouth very well. So that's how things are doing. But as I said, we'll, we'll be talking uh, more about that in depth next week. Now on to the show. Clips today come from Deep Background, Democracy Now!, Newsbeat, The Weeds, Off Kilter, The United States of Anxiety, and Social Distance. A lot of us have a visual image of what it's actually like inside a jail or a prison only from television, and in fact, mostly from fictional television. Would you explain a little bit to us about how conditions, for example, in a big city jail like Rikers, are especially conducive to uh, the transmission of infectious disease. Yeah, I think that there are some features of jails that we might generally understand that really contribute to the transmission of communicable diseases. So the fact that there are lots of people in very small spaces and those people are jammed into housing areas that whether they're a dorm or comprised of cells, it's still lots of people in a small space sharing uh, congregate bathrooms and sinks. Uh, people to go from one part of the jail to the other have to go through hallways and go through these things called sally ports or control hubs where they're all jammed in and you have a gate that closes behind you before a gate can open in front of you. There's intake areas where people come in, especially in county jails that have such a high churn. You know, half the people are gone by day 10 or 15. Uh, so they're constantly filling up with newly arrested and detained people. Those folks are coming in through these intake pens that are very you know, teeming with people, just scores of people in small spaces, nowhere to sit, laying on the floor. And that's all the physical plant. Then if you add in the fact that most of these places are filthy, they have incredibly bad sanitation, uh, you have garbage, uh, food trays, other types of trash built up all over the place, they really promote the spread of communicable diseases during normal times and during uh, outbreak response, uh, the way that they're built and designed and run promotes the spread of disease. One reaction that I had when first thinking about incarcerated population 
is that the lockdown, which is sometimes the word that we use colloquially to describe what's happening to everybody else. I mean, I know that Governor Cuomo in New York wants to call it a pause and uh, in California, they call it a stay in place order and others have called it shelter in place, but lockdown is still the, the vernacular phrase that comes from prison. I mean, that's a prison metaphor. And that might create the impression in somebody's mind, I think it did it at my first uneducated thought before I started reading what you were writing about this, that actually prisons might be manageable because you actually do have the capacity to control the movement of prisoners. But on closer examination of what you've been saying, that seems completely misguided. And I wonder if you would just say a word about that, because I think I might not be the only person who has that instinct. Yeah, I think that, you know, prisons and jails are built for punishment and, and security control of people, of humans. I think that we all have this desire to stop the movement of this virus through our society, and there's a lot of really important measures that we're all engaged in to try and do that. Uh, the problem in prisons and jails and in correctional spaces is that uh, lockdown generally means putting people into locked cells often, uh, sometimes dorms, but often we use it, it's used in terms of cells, locking people into cells and then keeping them there and then only bringing them out for certain circumstances. And the idea is that the problem will stay in the cell. And so in this circumstance, uh, the, and what I would say is inappropriate use of lockdowns as the primary response to coronavirus, the notion would be that if you lock everybody into cells, then the virus either won't get in, or if it's in the cell, it won't get out and it won't move around the facility. That is erroneous for a number of reasons. First of all, people who are locked down are being punished. Whatever you say is the reason for it. When you go get locked into a cell, when you're going into solitary, it causes a lot of stress. People don't like it. It is associated with suicide and self-harm. And so people don't want to go into those cells. Then to institute a lockdown, that means that you all of a sudden are going to ask your correctional staff to put their hands on a lot of people, to have a lot more physical contact um, with people, um, sometimes uses a force that get them into these cells. And then every time they come out of those cells for a shower, if they come out to go to the medical unit, if they come out for any other reason, you're often then in this position of having to have two escort officers, handcuff them, uh, escort them physically. All of that is just really escalating the amount of physical contact between humans in these facilities. The other real core problem with this is that when people get sick, and we know they're getting sick, uh, when they're locked in a cell, you don't see that. Correctional officers coming by every 15 minutes or 30 minutes to peek through a, you know, a dimly illuminated uh, vision panel or window in a cell door is not the way that you keep an eye on people that you're worried about getting sick or dying. So the lockdown as a public health response is not appropriate as the primary measure. And in many ways, it can actually increase the flow of the virus into and out of a facility. Obviously, the most immediate ethical worry that I think we all need to have with respect to incarcerated people is that it shouldn't be the case that if someone is being locked up, they're being essentially put in a situation you know, like being put on a cruise ship, but involuntarily and with much worse conditions, which is likely to significantly increase their chance of getting sick and dying. But I assume there's also a concern for the general public associated with enabling a coronavirus to spread rapidly within jails and, and prisons, partly because corrections officers are coming and going, and so it will spread into the general population, partly because of resource allocation issues, because if you get a big outbreak, a lot of uh, resources are inevitably going to be called on, even if they were not distributed in a fair way. What do you see as the main concern for the general public here? I mean, putting aside the very pressing ethical concern that we shouldn't be 
arresting people for minor offenses and then putting them in a place where they have a better chance of catching a disease and dying. Yeah, I think the simplest way I could put it is that uh, correctional settings, prisons, jails, and ICE detention centers are going to drive this epidemic curve straight up. Uh, so we hear about trying to flatten that curve, about trying to relieve the strain and stress on our health system by social distancing and taking all these other measures and really extreme important measures that are being implemented today. What happens behind bars is going to drive that epidemic curve in exactly the opposite direction of what we're working towards. And so they will quickly become reservoirs and they probably are already, but certainly as we make gains in the rest of the community, these places will become critical reservoirs for infection. They're going to continue to cycle infection out of these places, in and out as staff go in and out, and to some extent the people who are held there. But, you know, there's many more people coming and going every day who are staff members than there are arriving as newly arrived uh, people in a prison or jail. So these places as reservoirs of infection, as congregate settings where the spread of the infection cannot really be controlled, stand to dramatically escalate the epidemic curve that we're working so hard to bring down. Homer, you mentioned crucially that prisons and jails are probably already, at least in New York City, becoming reservoirs of coronavirus. That leads us to the really pressing question of what we should be doing and how we should be doing it with respect to releasing people. And I want to start with just asking a question of you when you wear your epidemiologist hat. And that is, given that we know now that there are presumably lots of cases, including asymptomatic cases in jails and prisons, if we open those doors, is that going to be adding a new vector of rapid spread to the general population? And if so, is that nevertheless the right thing to do in terms of the overall cost benefit of fighting the disease? Well, I think where we're at now is that when coronavirus arrives in a community, it, part of the community is the jail or prison or ICE detention center, and it's going to arrive there. So places where we likely have a significant number of people who are asymptomatic, who are kind of brewing early infections, it's no different inside the jail than outside the jail. Now, in the coming weeks, we will have spread inside those facilities that, you know, may be more accelerated than outside. But one of the, my primary concerns is that unlike the community where we're going to have some family or ability, some other, we have capacity to see who's getting sick and who needs hospital level care. We're going to miss that behind bars. When H1N1 hit, everybody who was symptomatic was tested in the New York City jails. And so uh, sometimes the press uh, and people on the outside would erroneously think that this was a Rikers outbreak of H1N1. But we, everybody who was symptomatic was in a housing area, and they, these weren't cells, they were dorms, but they were in housing areas where they couldn't move in and out, but also we would give them a test. And then if they were uh, symptomatic, they'd go to the same place that the um, coronavirus patients are going today, the West Facility Communicable Disease Unit. But people thought, because I think it was like two and a half percent of the people coming into the who came into the jails during that time tested positive, they thought, boy, this is a Rikers problem. It wasn't. It's a community problem. We just happened to be very aggressive about testing because we did not want to miss a single case. I think that the way to characterize what's happening behind bars is if it's in the community, it's part of the community is the jail or prison. And so I don't believe that, at least today, there's a epidemiologic reason to say releasing people is going to contribute to the infection. And I think that right now we've turned a corner in this country, which is 
our primary focus is on preventing death. Um, and to do that, we have to get people out of these places. bring Angelica Salas into the conversation, executive director of the Coalition for Humane Immigrant Rights in California, known as CHIRLA. Um, talk about John Sandwig's proposal, just release. He's saying uh, the overwhelmingly nonviolent detainees who are under ICE custody, because ICE—people uh, who are in civil detention, because uh, ICE has the supreme power simply to make that decision. Can you talk about that and also what it means to be um, a person with a violent record? Aren't these people who have already served time in prison who are then put into uh, the system, the ICE system, to be deported? Uh, well, I agree wholeheartedly with uh, John that uh, we have to close these centers down. It, it is absolutely outrageous that everything in America has stopped. Um, our jails are releasing prisoners, and yet in our immigration detention centers, we still have people at risk of dying. It is imperative that um, these centers be shut down immediately. Um, and I think that, um, in my perspective, is that uh, we need to release everyone in those in those detention centers. Um, the uh, Congress has appropriated billions of dollars um, in order to run these centers. Um, my, uh, in addition, there's millions of dollars have been allocated for alternatives to detention, so resources to actually allow individuals to be um, released. Um, and I want to remind everybody: these are mothers, these are fathers. These are human beings, and they should be treated no different than anybody else. So we're calling for an immediate shutdown of these detention centers. Um, individuals need to be released back to their homes. They have families um, whom they have to um, be with. Um, so our, our perspective is that during this time of crisis, once again, the immigrant community is being attacked, um, whether it's uh, on the enforcement side or in the detainee side. And I also want to tell everybody, that um, as we have individuals who are fighting their detention and their deportation, on the other side, there's also immigration attorneys. And I, I, have, I um, have to tell you, I'm working with our immigration attorneys who are saying, what do we do? We're be, we have a horrible choice to, to make. We have to go into immigration courts to defend people who are in detention so that they have their due process and they're not deported from this country at the same time they still have to put themselves out there um, to represent these detainees, to, to be able um, uh, to, to fulfill justice even in this moment. We have to fully close our immigration courts and we have to release these detainees and protect everybody involved. So I also want to talk about the immigration attorneys um, who are still being her heroic during this time, trying to defend immigrants. Um, we just need to understand Immigrants are human beings, and they need to be treated with dignity during this time. They need to be afforded um, what every other human being deserves, which is a chance to live. At Sunday's coronavirus briefing at the White House, a reporter asked President Trump if undocumented immigrants can go to testing sites without fear of then being deported. 
Um, Vice President Pence said Customs and Border Protection has issued guidance that agents will not target emergency rooms or health clinics in search of undocumented immigrants, barring extraordinary circumstances. But this was Trump's response. The answer is yes, we will do those tests, because I think in that case it's important. Uh, I think that uh, if you could call, you could say illegal alien, you could say illegal immigrant, you could say whatever you want to use your definition of what you're talking about. We're all talking about the same thing. Uh, yes, we will test that person because I think it's important that we test that person and we don't want to send that person back into wherever we're going to be sending the person, whether it's another country or someplace else, because, you know, we're now bringing them right out of our country. But, yeah, we will test those people. We will test those people. It's important because we're sending them out of the country. Um, first, I want to ask John Sandwig and then Angelica Salas. Can you respond to what he just said? Yes, so that we can deport them? Well, listen, <clears throat> this is a public health issue, just like the detention centers themselves. I think it's for helpful for people to look at this, not only uh, but the health and safety of the undocumented immigrant or the detainee itself, but the public at large. If we have undocumented immigrants uh, in our communities who are scared to go get testing, who might be symptomatic and certainly might be contagious, and they are hesitant to go be tested because of fear that ICE is going to take them into custody, it doesn't just make that community unsafe. It makes all of us unsafe. So, again, this is a very simple Common sense proposal, it seems to me, is that ICE needs to issue guidance, making it abundantly clear that individuals who go for testing or seek medical treatment are not going to be taken into custody. Now, the reality is this. ICE has no desire to take these individuals into custody. ICE is just as much scared of a breakout in one of their detention facilities as uh, as is the immigrant community. ICE is going to stay away from anybody who's being diagnosed or tested or suspected of having COVID-19 simply because an outbreak is very difficult for ICE to handle internally uh, and logistically and exposes the ICE officers at risk themselves. Nevertheless, there's a fear in the immigrant community about ICE, especially in the Trump administration. And this is something that we did during natural disasters on multiple occasions, hurricanes and otherwise, is put out a statement saying we're not going to take people into custody who are seeking you know, assistance. Something very similar needs to be done here, not just, again, for the safety of that community itself, but for all of our safety so that these individuals can be tested and go into quarantine if they are, in fact, uh, positive for COVID-19. And Angelica Salas, if you could respond and specifically address children, I mean, who are separated all over this country, we don't even know the numbers right now and how they fit into this picture. Um, a cheerless perspective is that immigration enforcement needs to cease immediately. Um, there is no reason that any person going for testing um, should actually be afraid that immigration will somehow come in contact with them. At this moment, um, what we need to do is safeguard resources for this health crisis. Um, and so what we're asking for, number one, is that all immigrants, um, independent of their immigration status, be, have access uh, to testing that they also have access to the treatment if they are found um, to have the virus, um, that they are treated in the same way as any other human being in, uh, during this moment. I want to let listeners understand that across this country, immigrants, undocumented immigrants, don't have the same access to the resources available to others. So this is a moment in which we say, because we are all interdependent, 
um, where we all actually are dependent on, on, on other people's health for our own health. We need to make sure that immigrants have access to all the same level of care. And that also means that we uh, increase resources to community clinics, which in many instances are places where the undocumented go for treatment. That is the first place that they will go. So we need to make sure that we also bolster up resources um, across this country so that uh, immigrants have the same same level of care. Um, there should be no requirement for residency, citizenship status, or any other kind of uh, request for information um, for immigrants. Otherwise, they're not going to go move forward. And I tell you this because we run an immigrant assistance um, hotline, and we're receiving these calls of individuals who are calling us just to make sure that they're able to move forward um, with testing. Um, the last thing I also want to say with this is that um, immigrants are also the ones that are being laid off all over this country who are losing their jobs, and they don't have access to unemployment benefits either. So whether it's access to care or access to just um, uh, some level of economic support, they're completely left out. And I want to tell America, we are part of this country. Immigrants are part of this country. Um, we are the ones who who have taken care of your children, of your elderly, who are putting food on your table right now. And just do not um, forget us and make sure that immigrants are included in this in this moment of, of great peril for the rest of our country, for the for our entire country. Best of the Left is a totally independent production. We have no parent company, no safety net, nothing like that. We are totally dependent on the direct financial support of the audience. And we have three people who don't work full-time on the show, but definitely depend on the show to generate money. So we are as vulnerable as everyone else in this time of economic uncertainty. You know, when, when people start not being able to go to work or getting laid off, non-essential expenses are going to be the first to go. And that means we expect to begin to see a drop in Patreon members in the coming weeks. So if you can support the show on Patreon, that would be amazing. But there's also a way that you can support the show without it costing you anything. If you're doing any shopping from the big box store in the sky, you can use our affiliate link and we will get a cut of the price from everything you purchase. Our affiliate links for the US, UK, and Canadian stores are in the show notes and on the device you're using to listen right now. They're also available on our website, bestofleft.com, in the sidebar. If you take just a couple of minutes to bookmark the link to your store on your browsers and even delete the mobile app from your phone and add that link as a button in its place, you can enormously help us get through this health and economic crisis just by doing your regular shopping. Thanks so much for your help and support. Just to put a perspective on this 9-11, which so many of us live through in this state and in this nation, 2,753 lives lost. This crisis, we've lost 6,268 New Yorkers. The number of dead in New York is climbing and the morgues are running out of space. Bodies are now being stored in refrigerated lorries parked outside the city's hospitals. This is another victim of coronavirus. Another number to add to America's growing toll. 
as I'm sure you know, uh, New York City is the epicenter of the pandemic um, at this moment. Um, the infection rate is incredibly high across New York City. All non-essential businesses are shut down. There's been, not using the term, but effectively a shelter-in-place order ha have come through. The NYPD is still hard at work. People are being arrested. And public defenders and other defense uh, attorneys have been deemed essential employees. And so we are still representing people on new arrests as they come through the system. We The courts have recently changed to virtual. So our clients obviously are not virtual. They're being arrested and brought into central booking, but then everybody else appears on video. So we're representing people and trying desperately to keep them out of um, Rikers Island because 24 hours in central booking in small cages and groups is dangerous enough. And then at the same time, our office in conjunction um, with all of the other public defense offices in the city are working incredibly hard to get everybody, as many people as we possibly can, out of Rikers and the other city jails. We have done individual advocacy, seeking, um, you know, resentencing, making bail applications, filing individual writs, and then also filing um, what we have been calling mass writs, basically saying that it is cruel and unusual punishment. There is like not sufficient medical care and people are in grave danger if they continue to be held at Rikers Island and the other city jails. Today, we got some dire news out of New York City's jail, where precisely the thing advocates and public defenders and experts have been warning about for weeks is now coming true. According to a new analysis by the Legal Aid Society, there are 75 cases of coronavirus in city jails, most of which are in the Rikers Island. Rikers is one of the largest correctional facilities in the world. And right now, the infection rate there is seven times that of New York City, 87 times that of the U.S. as a whole. We are seeing rates of infection far beyond what we are seeing even in New York City, which is in the epicenter, uh, and many more magnitudes beyond what we're seeing in other parts of the country. Now, in other jails and prisons, we simply have no idea. There has not been sufficient testing. And in fact, there has been an intentional obfuscation of the spread of the virus. So we have seen uh, the first deaths of people inside in-state prisons, but we have no idea the scope of the spread because there has been virtually no testing. A Rikers Island inmate has died from coronavirus. The Department of Correction says it's the first death of an infected prisoner. The inmate died yesterday at Bellevue Hospital. The DOC says beginning last Friday, masks were given to all staff and those in custody. So the first case of somebody uh, with COVID-19 who died from it um, happened in Rikers on Sunday. And what we are seeing in that case and in many others is that people are in Rikers on technical parole violations. They are there in pretrial detention and that we are talking about a virus that is a death sentence for some people. And so it means that somebody who is in on a parole violation, meaning they missed curfew or they didn't check into the, with their parole officer when they were supposed to, that folks like that are being are, have been sent back to jail across the state. This is not a new problem, but it is now a problem uh, that can kill you. And that is what we are. That is what we are seeing. And it is why it is so critical that the mayor and the governor move to release people en masse, sweeping clemencies, and barring new admissions to jails and prisons.
There is tremendous work from the public defenders and legal advocates. There has been a filing of both individual and mass writs to have people released. Legal Aid, Bronx Defenders, Brooklyn Defender Services are all engaged in that work in New York City for people who are being held on technical parole violations, but also for people being held in immigration detention facilities. So we've had some success. Right before the pandemic started, the um, population of Rikers Island was over 5,000. It is um, below that now, um, but it's not nearly enough success. In doing individual um, applications, uh, we have had, we've got over 30 of our clients um, out of custody. We started with um, just under 300 in on an individual capacity. There were about 600 some people that were held on Rikers Island on solely on technical parole violations. Many of those people are getting released. The Legal Aid Society filed a writ. Their first writ was on behalf of people who had age or medical concerns and were on technical parole writs. That was granted entirely. Um, 115 people got out. So between all of the offices, we are making a dent. But that being said, the infection rate at Rikers Island, for all of the obvious reasons, is about seven times higher than it is in New York City, where it's the highest in the world right now. Jails, as well as prisons across the country, cramped quarters, less than hygienic conditions are contributing to the spread of the virus among both prisoners and the people that work there, corrections officers. Those corrections officers and those employees, of course, can then bring that infection back to their families and their communities. And so it is all a huge public health threat. Some states and counties are starting to take it seriously, releasing thousands of low-risk, elderly, or vulnerable inmates. People are terrified. They're scared for their lives. I mean, the, you know, the jail system is just not equipped. I mean, they hand sanitizer is considered contraband. You know, they filed an affidavit in court saying that they can handle this because they've given everyone unlimited access to soap. But they cannot keep people more than six feet apart. They simply can't do it. And people are coming, new people are entering Rikers Island every day. The people who work there are going in and out of the facility. There are many, many people, corrections officers, who have tested positive. There's over 200 inmates who have tested positive. It is a disaster that has started to happen. We have basically been working with the DA's office trying to get them to consent because it's questionable of whether there's a true legal means to just get somebody resentenced. But for people that had um, two months and less left to serve on the sentence, the defender offices, ours and others, as well as the mayor's office, have tried to compile lists of everybody that had a very short amount of time left on their sentence. And then we are negotiating with the district attorneys to agree to shorter sentences. The mayor's office also, on a, like people who had um, short sentences left but were still there, they ordered that most of those people, so and again, that was over 100 additional people, be released on work release. So they're still in technically in the custody of the Department of Corrections, but they are serving their sentence on work release, so from home and checking in on supervision. You know, it's been a real uphill battle to make people, and when I say people, I mean the system, courts, prosecutors, understand, like, really, truly, that this is not, we're not operating in the normal sense. And when you, you know, they keep going back to this idea of public safety, you know, we are not saying 
Obviously, my preference would be let everyone out, figure it out after we're not putting people at grave risk of death. But, you know, to the extent that that realistically we know that is not going to happen, we need to have a much broader sense of what it means. Prosecutors should not be prosecuting low-level offenses, never mind asking for bail, even if somebody is technically eligible for bail. You know, if somebody is simply a flight risk, so what? <laughs> you know, that's what I have to say at this point. I mean, it is getting somebody to return to court. Is that really worth risking their and other people's lives by putting them into these crowded situations? I don't think so. We are leveraging all of the organizing and advocacy tactics in our toolbox made challenging by the fact that there is a raging epidemic that means that we are not allowed to congregate in groups. And so traditional protests outside of the governor's office, for example, are something that we cannot that we cannot do. wanted to ask Dara to sort of explain to us what is going on at the border uh, with coronavirus. Um, obviously, the U.S.-Mexico border has not, like in a practical sense, been an important coronavirus hotspot, but all countries around the world have been sort of cracking down on travel, hardening borders and stuff in, in response to this. And in Donald Trump's case, uh, this is a, an aspiration he has long had is to do a big border crackdown. And so what's what's happening there? Right. So I think it's important to know both kind of as context for what we're about to be talking about and just kind of generally as people start to think about, you know, the kind of long term effects of the coronavirus pandemic that one of the exceptions to the countries cracking down on travel and being very aggressive in implementing social distancing has been Mexico. Uh, there have been a lot of questions about why Mexico has been slower than a lot of other countries, including much smaller countries with much less international travel in Latin America in you know, cracking down on international flights in implementing aggressive uh, social distancing policies. The president of Mexico, uh, somewhat similarly to the president of the United States, has been, you know, doing an aggressive public appearance schedule that raises questions about kissing babies, shaking hands, that that sort um, of thing, arguing that religious amulets might help protect against coronavirus. It's been very strange to observe. you know, I point this out for the purpose of saying that we actually may very well be looking at a period of time where the U.S. has taken an aggressive response and, and has flattened the curve on coronavirus, but Mexico uh, has not. That's going to be a dynamic I think we'd be dealing with for some time. Now, what relationship that bears to the actions the Trump administration has taken is a big question, both because we have a lot of pre-existing evidence that the Trump administration sees people coming in via Mexico, often from, you know, Central America or even South America or even 
you know, via Central and South America, but coming from African and Asian countries as an existential threat, regardless of whether there is a global pandemic spreading or not. And so there is something of a boy who cried wolf problem here in their attempts to, for the sake of public health, legitimize a border crackdown. There are also, of course, questions about like the chronology of this, right? We had first heard several weeks ago at this point, back when there were barely any coronavirus cases being reported in Mexico or really in Latin America more broadly, that the U.S. was considering doing more to shut down the border with Mexico. And ultimately, the U.S. did make agreements with both Canada and Mexico to limit cross-border travel. Those agreements were by all appearances, legitimately bilateral, probably because the U.S. at that point had more cases than either Mexico or Canada. So, there is, I think, a tendency among critics of the administration, certainly listener, most listeners of this podcast would probably fall into that uh, category, to assume that the administration is led by ideology at, at best, I guess, and that it's kind of reverse engineering everything from there. That may be true, but it's also the case like there is a tricky situation here. But what the U.S. has done in practice is to say, Our primary concern is that if people are in holding facilities on the border, in customs and border protection facilities, the kind of places where there were a lot of concerns about crowding a year ago, places that aren't built to be holding people at all for any period of time and that don't have the kind of minimum standards of care that exist in places that are supposed to be detention facilities, the concern is, okay, if if coronavirus gets in there, We can't control the spread. It's going to be a big problem for migrants. It's going to be a big problem for Customs and Border Protection employees. It's going to kind of spread throughout the region. And so to keep people from being held in Customs and Border Protection facilities, they are instituting a policy where basically everybody gets just sent back. They do not get processed for immigration purposes, even when that processing is just saying, you entered, you weren't supposed to be here, we're deporting you. They're just doing a very quick kind of bio check and then sending people to Mexico. That is contingent, obviously, on Mexico accepting those people back. It's accepting back not only Mexicans, but uh, Guatemalans, Hondurans, and Salvadorans as well. So, That turns out to be an overwhelming majority of the people who are coming in without papers through Mexico. We don't have a ton of details still about how exactly this process works. We know a little bit. More than anything, it appears to be a return to the policy of George W. Bush in the mid-2000s when there were a lot more people coming across, where people weren't formally deported if they just got caught coming in. They were just sent back. That got dismissed by immigration hawks as catch and release and was replaced with the holding people longer so you could formally deport them. But it also does raise substantial questions about the biggest difference between now and the mid-2000s isn't just that there are fewer people coming over, but that more of the people who are coming over are uh, trying to seek asylum in the United States. And so there are massive due process concerns there. As far as I can tell, this is sort of what Donald Trump has wanted to do all along. I mean, as you say, the the public health situation in Mexico is legitimately very concerning. And I think any administration would have a heightened concern, I mean, both about the fact of the pandemic and the Mexican government's pretty eccentric attitude toward it. But 
as far as I can tell from, from leaks and various things, like this has been Trump's frustration with the border all along that like that it is a zone of law in which there is a processing of people and there are steps at which they can raise certain kinds of objections. And even if he personally believes that their claims are in bad faith or illegitimate, they have a right to a court hearing. And there are like questions about under what circumstances can you detain people and and things like that. And that he wants the border. He conceptualizes the border as like a rubber band. Right. That you just or a, a pulse field, yeah, absolutely, back. yeah, and that and that now the the public health emergency is somehow illegally bureaucratic. Something has changed, and he is now able to actuate what has long been sort of his vision of how this ought to function. So bureaucratically, what's happening is the kind of reversion to the mid 2000s. The technical turn term is that people are are not no longer being deported. They are being voluntarily returned. Legally, what they're doing is different. They're claiming that because that they are invoking a part of federal law that, like a lot of things under this administration, uh, had been either dormant or like not really conceptualized for this purpose, like a lot of people in immigration world were not familiar with this when they first invoked it. It's under Title 42 of the U.S. Code. Immigration stuff is generally under Title 8. This is under a kind of set of laws dealing with public health and what powers the government has in times of public health concern. And it gives the, in practice, the CDC, the authority to ban the entry of people or things that might introduce an infectious disease into the U.S. And so legally, the administration has put forth an argument that, A, uh, even if a disease is currently present in the U.S., if it could be introduced into more places or spread further, that counts as an introduction that it can then ban things from. Secondly, that when it says that people can't come from places that have the disease, you can define a person as a place and therefore you can, you can ban a type of person from entering. And so therefore, as a result of concern about coronavirus, they can ban the entry of anyone coming in without papers, which is an interesting legal argument. They're essentially saying that not only is this legally separate from all immigration law, that it basically trumps existing immigration law, that it gives them a totally separate channel through which they can deal with people who are entering the U.S. And so therefore, the statutory things that are in place to guarantee a certain minimal amount of due process for anyone who expresses a fear of persecution in their home country no longer need to apply because this is not happening under Title VIII. It's happening under Title 42. It is not a tested argument. They have not issued any kind of Office of Legal Counsel memo saying, here's why we think this is kosher. As a matter of fact, they weren't really explicitly publicly saying that they think it trumps immigration law. That's the conclusion that's been drawn from, you know, what they've kind of said in private briefings. I got a an internal border patrol memo on how processing was supposed to happen under this that made it pretty clear that they don't consider the you have to do x y and z if they express fear of persecution standards to be in place because they consider it a totally separate process than the title 8 process but 
it's the sort of thing that under general circumstances, you would see litigation, you would see arguments being made explicitly, does this in fact trump all existing immigration laws and practices? But because both of the kind of speed with which this was implemented in the secrecy, and because of the state of emergency concerns, that conversation isn't happening in public. And whether or not it's going to happen at all may be dependent not just on the shape of the coronavirus, you know, arc itself, but also on how long the Trump administration decides to keep this policy in place and whether they push the limits of what would be a kind of emergency timeline. That point that this is not a general situation is so important because you're seeing the response on the Mexican side of the border where Mexican authorities are attempting to clear the border themselves. So they're putting people on buses to go to other Mexican states, perhaps. And so you have a large group of Central American migrants who are being pushed away from the border on both sides. Right. And to be clear, a lot of these people have been waiting for you know, months and months, because even prior to this policy, and like, it can be a little bit tricky if you haven't been following the developments over the border in the last, if you've been following them a little bit over the last year and a half, it kind of has seemed for a while, like basically nobody can claim asylum in the United States. But what's been happening has been that regulatorily speaking, people entering without papers are not allowed to get asylum, but that doesn't mean they're not allowed to get any humanitarian protection. There are kind of these lesser forms of relief written into the law that the administration can't regulate out of existence. And they've been getting sent back to Mexico kind of temporarily, indefinitely, while they have court proceedings in the U.S. That is what is changing now. They're not bothering to get any kind of U.S. court date. There isn't any promise of we will consider some kind of persecution claim for some kind of legal status in the U.S., but it means that the thousands of other Latin American migrants who have been kind of hanging out on the U.S.-Mexico border coming back in for their court dates occasionally, those court dates have been pushed back indefinitely, and the Mexican government is making a much more aggressive effort to kind of clear them out. You've reached the activism portion of today's show. Now that you're informed and angry, here's what you can do about it. Today's activism, donate to the National Bail Fund Network and to demand to free them all. Right now, hundreds of thousands of people in America are languishing in jail and immigrant detention centers during a pandemic because they are too poor to pay bail. As of 2015, the median felony bail bond amount was $10,000, the equivalent of eight months' income for a typical defendant, according to Prison Policy Initiative. It can take months, sometimes years, to have a trial, and those in poverty spend that time in prison, not only experiencing the trauma of incarceration, but also losing any job they had outside and being torn away from children and loved ones who depend on them. And now, there's one more threat face on the inside the novel coronavirus. At the notorious Rikers Island prison in New York, at least 273 detainees have tested positive for the virus. An immigrant detention center in San Diego has 10 cases confirmed, with others experiencing symptoms but not being tested. Though the virus may have forced ICE to scale back its attacks on immigrant neighborhoods, thousands sit in prisons and detention camps because they lack the means to pay bail. While governors who have immense power to do something sit on their hands or make things worse, 
you can actually help set people free, possibly saving their lives from the comfort of your home. Make a donation of any amount today to the National Bail Fund Network, a listing of over 60 community bail and bond funds across the country. These community bail funds are freeing people by paying bail and bond and are also fighting to abolish the money bail system in pretrial detention. Go to bit.ly slash local bail funds. There you can donate directly to their COVID-19 rapid response fund or find specific pretrial and immigration bail funds by state in their directory. Your next step should be sharing this link as far and wide as you can. Check out the hashtag FreeThemAll on Twitter for more information on how to help. The segment notes include all the links to this information as well as additional resources, and as always, this and every activism segment we produce is archived and organized under the Activism tab at bestofleft.com. So if helping the most vulnerable among us during this pandemic is important to you, be sure to hit the share buttons to spread the word about the National Bail Fund Network via social media so that others in your network can spread the word too. Can you stand up and be counted as a body in a crowd? Put your name on a petition with your signature so proud Can you raise your voice so loud as you stand with head on bowed Weather beating on your brow, demanding answers here and now Cause that's how you make a difference in this fickle world of change Two groups who remain at some of the greatest risk of being left behind in in the COVID-19 response are people behind bars in prisons and jails and immigrants in detention facilities. So to take a look at the state of affairs in those facilities and the steps we urgently need our leaders to take at all levels of government, I'm thrilled to welcome my colleague Tom Javits, Vice President of Immigration Policy at the Center for American Progress, and Emily Galvin Almanza. She's the Executive Director of Partners for Justice and Senior Legal Counsel at the Justice Collaborative. Emily and Tom, thanks so much for taking the time to come on the show, especially at this incredibly chaotic moment. Thanks for having us. Yeah, definitely. So, Emily, I'm gonna I'm gonna kick it over to you first to sort of paint a little bit of a picture about what is uh, going on, what things are looking like for folks behind bars in prisons and in jails. We've seen just a, co- a growing chorus of news stories over the past week or so, especially the past several days, shining a spotlight finally not just on people who are hoarding bottled water and bread and hand sanitizer and tips for social distancing. Seems like there's a whole kind of category of news now that that's just that. Um, but but the people who are behind bars unable to practice social distancing and in many cases not allowed to even possess the hand sanitizer that so many people are, are, are hoarding, hoarding by the bottle. What does the picture look like in prisons and jails? Your, your colleagues at Partners for Justice have been among those who are working on the front lines in the response. It's looking really grim. Um, to be honest, It's not just hand sanitizer that's restricted. Many people who are living inside locked facilities, inside conditions where they may be locked in a cell with two or three or more people, don't even have access to soap. We were hearing reports out of Rikers of people going into the sink area where there's usually one bar of soap shared by 30 or 40 people on each sink, and someone has taken the soap. So they don't even have access to soap and water. The most basic recommendation of the CDC and the World Health Organization and everybody else telling people how to be safe from COVID-19. So what we're seeing on a large scale are people who are in custody, terrified, unable to protect themselves, 
and unable to avoid being subjected to other people in close quarters. This includes both correctional professionals and other people who are locked inside these facilities. So basically it's a non-consensual <laughs> close quarters with no opportunity to access proper sanitation. Folks who we as a society have locked away and promised to keep safe while we do so are being put at extremely heightened risk. And what's more, creating circumstances where transmission to the community is not only likely but certain. After all, when it comes to prisons and jails, these are not places where people go and never come back. These are places where people go to work every day and come home every day and people visit. And people need to visit because in order to psychologically survive detention of this kind, one must have some kind of access to the outside world. So basically, the conditions are as bad as they possibly can be under these circumstances. And if things don't change urgently, we are going to see massive, massive loss of life in these facilities. Now, one of the sort of through lines of the coronavirus response has clearly been um, in the absence of rapid enough and significant enough leadership and action at the federal level, states and localities stepping up in great numbers to, to sort of do what they can and, and figure out how they can learn from each other on sort of a peer-to-peer -peer basis um, in, in trying to respond, at least for their own communities. There has been an immense level of organizing and, and pushing going on to pressure state and local action, um, what are we seeing at the state and local level? What types of steps are states and localities taking and are they enough? Are we seeing the leadership that we need at any level of government right now? That's a great question. The short answer is no, <laughs> we're not seeing enough, but I'm happy to walk through sort of what we are seeing. One thing I can point out is that we're seeing great support from actual people in the community. Uh, the Justice Collaborative is gonna be bringing out some, some polling and a report tomorrow. Um, detailing the level of support that likely voters show for letting out people who are at risk of dying of COVID-19. We see almost 60% support of likely voters who designate themselves as very conservative, a demographic that does not usually support releasing people from prison in you know, large scale supporting getting people out before they are put at risk. This includes elderly people, people with pre-existing conditions, people who are within six months of completing their sentence anyway and are getting out anyway. Voters across the ideological spectrum support letting people out. So you would think when there's strong polling of this kind that it would, and there's, you know, universal agreement from experts in the field that this is necessary and urgent. I, I should point out Ross McDonald, who's the chief physician of Rikers Island, tweeted yesterday about the urgency of social distancing and reducing population numbers and reducing crowding so that we can let people have a chance of survival. He described Rikers as a cruise ship recklessly boarding more passengers each day. So you have agreement from experts, you have support in the community, you have policy makers pushing leadership, executive leadership to use emergency power to do a couple of really simple things. One is released elderly people and people who have pre-existing conditions that put them at heightened risk of death from COVID-19. The next is to release people who are getting out anyway, people who are within a few months of ending their sentence and will be returning to the community no matter what. There's no reason to put them at risk. Third is people who are only locked up on technical violations of probation or parole, low-level offenses, things that make them not in any way a risk to the community should they be released. If we release those three categories of people today, that's tens of thousands of people. And every person we get out creates more space for people who do remain inside 
to be able to distance themselves and use soap and water and access facilities and medical care. So these changes are not controversial. These policies are not, um, they're not pie in the sky. They're actually very, very reasonable and broadly supported. Unfortunately, what we're seeing in local jurisdictions is a critical failure of leadership to act quickly on this. In many places, public defenders are being asked to bring petitions to release each client one at a time. So go through their entire client roster, figure out who has what pre-existing conditions and file a petition or a writ or some other kind of individualized motion. I was talking to a defender in New York today who's having to file a writ in person when we're all being told to stay home and work from home. So he's writing writ after writ after writ to go file on paper in person at the clerk's office, trying to get a court date where people can be heard. And that kind of a procedure is just not on the timescale that we need it to be if we're going to make a difference. Other jurisdictions have done smarter things. Some sheriffs have been using their executive power to simply designate elderly and vulnerable people for release. California has been a great leader in that. I think Alameda County released or designated about 250 people for release today. So the jurisdictions that are moving faster and smarter are going to see less loss of life. Places like New York, absolute disaster. Matt Katz is one of my colleagues at WNYC. He's a tried and true investigative reporter, which means he's one of those people in the newsroom who just have sources everywhere. He reports a lot on immigration and customs enforcement, which we call ICE. And over the past few weeks, his phone has been blowing up. Hello. Hey, uh, my name's Matt. Who's this? Hi, how you doing? With calls from inside detention centers here in New York and in New Jersey, from people who are waiting for a decision from an immigration judge about whether they're going to be deported. You want to tell me your name and what's going on? I'm recording the call. Lenny Munoz, M-U-N-O-Z. I've been here since October. Matt, I'm wondering, how have those people who are locked inside jail cells, how have they been managing to find you? I've been covering immigration and more specifically immigration detention for the last two or three years in the New York, New Jersey area. So I know some people who are locked up and who call me once in a while to tell me what's going on. In the last couple of weeks, though, those calls have really spiked. Who's calling from an inmate at the Orange County Jail? You know, now at every facility I, I report on, there's a case of coronavirus. To accept this call, press zero. So basically everybody I've ever talked to inside has been calling me, and they've been passing my phone number around to other detainees. Yo, you want to talk to the guy that I tell you about? Yeah, sure. Yeah. Hold on for a minute. Hold on. Hold on. Hey, how you doing? I'm Matt. Hello. Hey, how you doing? How you doing? I assume you're calling me on a phone that you got in there? Yes. Yes. And then to another detainee. Hello? Jose. Some fucked up shit just happened. There's a guy I've been talking to, uh, Jose Hernandez Velasquez. And this guy's been in the immigration system for a while now. He came to this country when he was one. He's from El Salvador. What's going on? What's this whole epidemic, this whole pandemic, everything is crazy in this jail. And he thinks they are totally ill-equipped to protect their own selves from this virus, and there's nothing they can do about it. There's no bleach, there's no sanitizing, there's no gloves, there's no mask. You know what I'm saying? There's there's nothing out here. 
Are the people who are running these facilities doing anything to keep people safe? Yeah, so some jails are putting people in lockup. Basically, they got everything strictly locked down. So they're two to a cell. They're allowed out half hour, maybe an hour a day. So they are guys who normally are accustomed to being able to walk around a little bit, play cards, whatnot, sit at a table, and now they have a bed and a toilet and a bunkmate. And all of the facilities have banned visits. So that means you're your baby, that means you're your wife, that means your lawyer. And, and look, 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 they cancel contact visits, they cancel all mail coming in. Basically, they canceled everything. They canceled commissary for two months until further notice. But what has freaked him out the most is he has watched as new ICE detainees have come into his unit. This is crazy. It's just everything's Wait, crazy. So there's somebody who's in there with you? Yes, there's actually five of them. Only one These are guys who have been picked up, arrested off the street since this pandemic began, which sends panic throughout the rest of the floor because these guys might be sick. It's just crazy because they're not even supposed to be on general population. They got them around 54 people. They're in quarantine. They're, they're supposed to stay in the rooms for 14 days, 23 hours a day in their cell. But they still come out. They're housed with us in the same unit. They shower in the same showers we do. They use the same phones. They eat from the same trays. They cook in the same microwave. They sit in the same chairs. When they come out for an hour a day, where are you guys? We lock in ourselves. And look, every time the nurses come to check their temperature, they come with masks, protective gear, gloves, and a whole white suit. They come to check them. But we're here 24 hours a day. How come we don't get no gloves? How come we don't get no bleach? How come we don't get no sanitizers? Anything just to be clean. There's no cleaning supplies at all. There's nothing like that. The only thing we got is soap. We're working with soap. I can only imagine having absolutely no control over your surroundings. Yeah. So where exactly are these guys being held? You keep saying jail and prison. I mean, are these are yeah. these are jails? So the the feds have very few ICE facilities that are run by the federal government. Most are either privately operated prisons or they are county jails that rent space out to ICE. And the distinction that the ICE detainees always make to me is that they're not criminals, that they are civilly charged with immigration violations. So to clarify, they're in jails, quote unquote, but they're there waiting to see whether or not they'll be deported or get to stay. That's why they're being held. Right. And that's why ICE can and has the discretion to release them at any time. And the sentiment in general is just like, I just, I just want to get out. Yes. But it's not just that they don't want to get sick. The primary thing is they're worried about their loved ones getting sick and them being inside when that happens. Hey, no, no, I'm going to have some people come talk to you. So, so. How many people have you talked to? Um, over a dozen people. Come here. It's being reported. Hello. Hello. Hi. I'm, I'm Matt. I'm a radio reporter. How you doing, Matt? Yeah. Um, uh, you got some questions for us. So this guy, Steve. Uh, S-T-E-E-V-E. He was explaining to me that they've also been organizing hunger strikes. Uh, this started in kind of fits and starts in a number of facilities. We've spoken about it, but a lot of us immigrants don't understand our rights. You know, America is built on integrity and equality, but they don't really know much about that. So guys have told me they've been threatened with being put in solitary confinement as a way of pressuring them to start eating again. So people are afraid of 
being locked in and not being able to speak to their family members, you know. Um, a lot of us have children. A lot of us has life outside this facility. So they're afraid. They're afraid that's going to be taken away from them. So they just want to, you know, bow down. Yeah, you understand what I mean? Yeah, of course. Of course. Uh, where, where are your kids? How many kids do you have? I have four children myself, and my whole family is U.S. citizens. What's your country? What country did you come from? I'm from Guadalupe. Now, I've been here for 27 years. I've been here since the age of age of five years old. Yeah, oh, that's crazy. I mean, are, what, what are you most worried about now? Um, I'm most worried about getting this disease, you know, because it's spreading like wildfire. The officers are allowed to go home. They come back, and they're not really being tested. They're just being monitored. If anybody bring this disease in here, this virus in here, it would be the officers or these new detainees. How are you guys getting information about this? Are you watching TV all day long on the news? Um, some of the officers, you know, they still treat us like humans, so they tell us what's really going on. They give it to us the way it is. And then others, they're just... You have one minute remaining. Um, I have one minute remaining, so I'm going to put it back. Okay. Um, okay. All right. Okay. Okay. You know, there's a sentiment that is new that I've been sensing from these guys that they don't have really beef with the corrections officers. Um, in fact, there's some degree of solidarity with them because the corrections officers are also in this vulnerable Petri dish of potential infection. Yeah. Their issue is with ICE and the system itself that is forcing them to remain incarcerated even though there's a coronavirus that's sweeping into their cells. Tell me, tell me, yeah, tell me again. You're, yeah, go ahead. Go ahead, go ahead. I'm listening. So there, there's this other guy I've been talking to throughout this whole process. Continue what you were saying. Yeah, I've been here. All the detainees are very straight at this moment. He didn't want his name used. He's concerned about retaliation by ICE. But mm -hmm. he's got four U.S. citizen children in New York and Florida. He's 45. And he's been in this jail for two and a half years, just waiting on appeals related to his order of deportation. And I've been telling him that I've had it, my body hit, and everything. And the last call I got from him, he said he's actually sick. And uh, yesterday they took me when I had a fever 103. Uh, with 103 temperature. That's all he knows. He has not been able to get a coronavirus test. He said his bunkmate is also feeling sick and wants to be released. just can check my temperature, and I have to beg the nurse to check my temperature. So they're not sending me to the hospital, and I'm doing nothing. You know, insufficient medical care is a notorious fact about ICE detention centers, mm -hmm. according to independent inspectors who have been into many of these facilities. So, And that's in um, the best of times. That's in the best of times. Exactly right. So they don't understand how, if this virus is as uh, widespread as it appears to be, how they could possibly get treated if and when they catch it. It's scary. It's scary. You know, we have loved one that's been missing so much, you know. And these people, they're doing this to us, you know. We're at this moment right now, we're about to die. You know, anything can happen to us. You know, what? You know we have these 15-minute windows where... The call gets cut off. We're only allowed to talk for 15 minutes. Mm -hmm. And as we got closer to the call getting cut off, he got increasingly more more desperate. I've been in here for 27 months away from my family, away from my kids. Almost as if time was really running out for for his own survival. It's 
some help. I need somebody to help me, please. I don't have no help. They keep us in here for no reason. At least they can put an ink bracelet on us. They can chalk us down. You know, let us, let us be free. Let us free. Please. This is not right. No other country holds as many immigrants in detention as the United States. Tens of thousands of people waiting for a judge to decide if they can stay or they have to be deported. This started with the Carter administration, when Haitian and Cuban refugees came to the country in large numbers, fleeing political violence. Those migrants were held in what amounted to detention facilities. Ronald Reagan expanded the practice throughout the 1980s. But when it really exploded was during the Clinton years. There were 6,785 people locked up on immigration violations in 1994. That number tripled over the coming years. And one of the reasons was there was a immigration law signed in 1996 that made detention mandatory for a vast number of criminal offenses, including, and you won't be surprised by this, drug crimes. Uh, What also has changed in recent years, and this changed after 9-11, asylum seekers ended up getting locked up. So if you fly into JFK and tell an officer at the airport that you want to declare asylum, you end up getting shackled at the ankles, shackled at the wrists, and taken over the George Washington Bridge to a privately run immigration detention center in New Jersey, and you sit there for months and maybe years until your hearing happens. There has been a bipartisan spirit for this kind of detention, and it has extended all the way down through state and local government. Detention is a reliable source of money because the federal government pays for space in local jails and prisons around the country. But ever since COVID-19 hit, families, community activists, immigration attorneys, even some former ICE officials have all argued that the vast majority of the people in these facilities can be safely released. But politicians right now are almost entirely silent. Um, The governors of New Jersey and New York, they've been pressed repeatedly. I've asked Governor Murphy in New Jersey about this. He has dodged the question twice. Matt has heard that there is concern about picking a fight with the White House right now. They don't want to get into a pissing match with Trump over his biggest issue, immigration, when they're looking for billions of dollars from the federal government. So they don't want to go and say, ICE needs to release these people in our local jails. It's not right. They don't want that cryon to show up on Fox and Friends and then Trump to see it and then cross out, you know, some allotment of money for New Jersey or whatever else Governor Murphy wants. So for now, it's a slow case-by-case legal fight for those trying to get out. I mean, there's this obvious critical question that's very time-sensitive right now, which is that people in jails and prisons across the country are uniquely vulnerable to this disease spreading. Many of them have pre-existing medical conditions. And in addition to that, a lot of people in the jail system don't need to be there, but for lack of relatively small amounts of money. Have you been thinking about what this means overall? Like when this crisis has passed, what are we going to have learned or what's going to happen? You know, The clearest thing is that the public health infrastructure inside jails and prisons 
need to be improved significantly. And this is, again, important for the sake of these human beings, uh, you know, the ones in jail who are presumed innocent and haven't even been convicted of anything, the ones in prison who have been convicted but are nevertheless being incarcerated by a society that has an obligation to protect them. And for all of us, really, because infectious diseases that spread in prisons don't stay there. People come in and out all the time. There are guards and staff who are going in and out of the prisons and going home to their families. So it's just a, a pennywise pound foolish system that we don't have basic things like soap, that we uh, pack people in such close quarters that the flu is going to go in through any institution anytime that one or two people get it. And then beyond the public health question, which is very straightforward, it, it seems pretty difficult to argue that these people shouldn't have soap. But a tougher question is how long should we keep people in prison? Uh, mm -hmm. Right now, there are different places around the country where people in the last six months of their sentence are being let out. Um, and Because of coronavirus. Yeah, yeah, because of coronavirus, just trying to thin out the population and different governors and prosecutors have thought, well, okay, these people are about to get let out anyway, uh, better let them out now. And so there are going to be a lot of questions asked about how long sentences are. And I wonder if the fact that the coronavirus is forcing us all into a kind of house arrest and the fact that we're all experiencing what that is like, even after just a couple of weeks of it, um, is going to cause people to reevaluate how long a one-year prison sentence or a five-year prison sentence mm -hmm. or a 10-year prison sentence really is, how much of a punishment right. that really is. Right. Um, Connor, I think that you, you know, there's this tension, right, where the government is telling people that the only way to prevent this disease is to social distance. And the same government is telling us that you have to go into prisons sometimes, that you have to stay there and that you cannot leave and that you cannot social distance. That contradiction seems like, like undeniable, that there's some plausible deniability about what might be happening in prisons at other times, that they can downplay rates of certain infectious diseases or not report abuse or inhumane conditions. But here, the very fact of just saying, no, we don't have enough physical space for people to social distance is itself clear evidence of an inhumane condition. When I hear assurances from different heads of jails and different spokespeople who are saying, don't worry, we have the ability to keep these people safe. Um, I just think, no, you don't, unless you have a bunch of empty isolation cells that we don't know about unless you're a very unusual facility in a position of very unusual abundance of space, uh, then it just is the case that people are going to be less safe uh, where you are than they would be otherwise. Yeah. I, I've been thinking and I've been hearing a lot about concern from public health advocates about prisons. Do you know of any places that have successfully taken emergency measures to depopulate jails and get people out? Is there any state or <laughs> any place you know, that's done anything that could be a model? One example I would look to is Philadelphia. Philadelphia seemed to be a case where prosecutors and defense attorneys and judges all worked together to try and find a relatively quick and expedient solution. You know, everything from letting some people out early to changing bail requirements to delaying arrests and arraignments for low-level offenses until after the coronavirus pandemic is over. And the federal 
United States attorney in that area, I think his name is Bill McSwain, went on to Tucker Carlson's show on Fox News in this just awful segment where he was basically asserting that the defense attorneys and the criminals are in league with one another and basically just want to let people out on the street for no reason because they have a radical ideological attachment to doing so. So it was just, you know, the most nakedly demagogic instance of attributing bad motives when there are these very clear motives for doing what they did that are probably going to make both the people remaining in the jails and the people of Philadelphia as a whole who have to share hospital facilities with anyone who gets sick safer. Yeah. That the stigma of criminality, I think, is really seems to be an underlying theme here that we put this moral valence on being convicted of something, being incarcerated, and it barely even matters what it is. But if you did something wrong, suddenly the value of your health in your life is decreased in the eyes of society. Yeah. And you can imagine an, an alternative reality where at the sentencing, a criminal would be told, you're you've committed these offenses, you're going to go to jail for two years, and you're also going to be infected with this disease. And that would seem monstrous to us. And yet, there's this simultaneous acceptance of the functional equivalent. It's nothing new to have a, a national debate around the um, uh, and really crisis in the, um, the the conditions that people detained in these facilities are facing. Um, in many ways, it seems that the pandemic is sort of exacerbating those underlying and in many cases incredibly sort of dehumanizing and um, uh, just just terrible conditions that people face um, in these facilities. Uh, you you have really been directing your um, fire. Uh, so to speak, in, um, uh, uh, in in terms of the policy response that you urgently think needs to happen in this moment at a couple of key federal agencies that are obviously very involved with um, uh, the detention of, um, of asylees, of refugees, of, of immigrants under the circumstances you're describing, and others. And, and those, of course, include the, the Department of Homeland Security, DHS, um, as well as um, uh, ICE, Immigration and Customs Enforcement. Um, uh, there's Customs and Border Protection as well, CBP. P, uh, CBP um, people will be familiar with these acronyms because of outrage over the uh, throughout the course of the Trump administration around keeping uh, kid, uh, uh, people in cages, um, separating families at the border. Um, what is it that you are looking for these agencies to do in this moment? What should an adequate federal response look like right now? Yes, yeah, so there are three main asks that we have for the government uh, that we've looked it up in this column. The first is. The Department of Homeland Security at the top needs to issue a formal public statement prohibiting certain ICE or Customs and Border Protection immigration enforcement actions. So what that means basically is DHS itself has to issue a statement saying that its highest priorities at this time are promoting life-saving and life-sustaining activities, that life and safety and health are their top priorities for the entire department, and they have to make it clear that they're not going to be conducting immigration enforcement actions at or near hospitals, healthcare facilities, doctor's offices, any testing sites or any quarantine sites. Um, one of the things we've seen uh, right now is that immigration and customs, DHS has been totally reluctant to do this. They haven't done this thus far. Immigration and customs enforcement 
uh, first basically was just sort of on a one-off basis, making similar statements to the press when they got inquiries. Uh, the spokesperson for DHS kind of mocked a bunch of members of Congress who requested this uh, and issued a tweet basically saying, you know, stop fear-mongering about this issue. Um, just yesterday, uh, Immigration Customs Enforcement, last night, put out a statement in which they promised to change some of their enforcement uh, processes, and they did make this affirmation about life-saving, life-sustaining activities. But uh, a top official at DHS uh, just uh, a couple of hours ago began to walk that back, saying that's ah, business as usual. The reason why it's important for DHS to do this is twofold. One, it's not enough to cover just ICE enforcement. It's got to cover Customs and Border Protection enforcement also. There are all along the U.S.-Mexico border, uh, in particular, these checkpoints uh, that are inside the, inside the United States. They're within 100 miles of the U.S. border. Um, and they're inside the United States that Border Patrol mans. And in many cases, they actually effectively cut off access for uh, immigrant families, uh, undocumented immigrants, uh, parents of, of, of U.S. citizen children uh, who are themselves undocumented, from accessing necessary medical care on the other side of the checkpoint. And we do not want any of those checkpoints to be stopping individuals from accessing that necessary medical care at this moment. So the statement has to apply to CBP uh, and their enforcement actions. Second of all, this is a standard, standard thing that DHS does repeatedly whenever they're dealing with an acute public health crisis like we're in right now. During the Flint water crisis, for instance, DHS issued a public statement making very clear they wouldn't be conducting any enforcement at clean water distribution sites. The Trump administration, on nine separate occasions so far, has issued statements affirming that it's going to suspend immigration enforcement actions during natural disasters. There's, I, it's literally inconceivable to me why the Department of Homeland Security has not issued a clear public statement thus far uh, on this issue. That's the first thing. The second thing they need to do is meaningfully reduce uh, the arrests that they're making all throughout the country and focus exclusively on significant public safety threats. Right. I think back actually to when I first started practicing as a lawyer over 15 years ago. Um, the first thing I worked on when I was back at the ACLU was what happened at the New Orleans jail uh, before, during, and after Hurricane Katrina. And there were individuals who, a day or two before Hurricane Katrina made landfall in New Orleans, who were being arrested for public intoxication on Bourbon Street and found themselves in the jail, which refused to evacuate uh, when the storm hit. They spent three days in locked cells, no water, no medication, no food, total chaos, and eventually were scattered all throughout the state for six, eight months, being held in medium maximum security prisons because they didn't have any records on them. The fact that New Orleans, 15 years ago, didn't change its policing practices in advance of the storm, let alone the fact they had no evacuation plan, is a mistake that we're repeating today. Why are Immigration and Customs Enforcement officers on the streets picking up parents, going to the grocery store, or picking their kids up from school when placing those individuals into our facilities is only going to create a, a clear and present danger to their lives and to community spread and public health generally? So that's got to stop. And the last thing I'll say is it makes no sense to just stop your enforcement actions on the street right now if you're not also looking at your detained population, about 38,000 people, and determining how many of them you can release immediately, right? The majority of individuals in immigration custody have never been convicted of any offense at all. There are thousands of individuals who are asylum seekers who pose no threat to public safety whatsoever, for sure. There are individuals who are elderly. There are individuals who are pregnant. There are individuals who have heart, cardiovascular disease, diabetes, who are particularly vulnerable to serious health consequences if they get a, 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 the novel coronavirus infection. 
They need to get these folks out of these facilities now. Deadly coronavirus cluster may not be on a cruise ship or in a city. It could be in jail. Some experts are warning that prisons are not ready for the pandemic, so some lawyers are trying to get their clients out on early release. New York City prisons are secretly preparing for a potential outbreak of the coronavirus among prisoners and officers. According to the City News outlet, the Department of Corrections created a 22-page long plan outlining safety measures to be implemented as soon as soon as the first case of the coronavirus is reported. People who are in jails and prisons and immigration detention centers, they already die from a lot of things that people shouldn't be dying from. They already suffer a lot of illnesses and results of illnesses that are unheard of in the broader community. You see a a shocking number of people who develop gangrene as a result of having diabetes and having untreated sores on their feet. Uh, And they lose limbs as a result. And that shouldn't be happening in this country ever. But it tells you a lot about the state of healthcare in correctional facilities. You have a concentration of people in a very small area who are really vulnerable, who are unwell, immune compromised, who are not well nourished. You've got healthcare providers who are stretched extremely thin for the most part and not able to provide very good care. If these kinds of illnesses get into one of these facilities, and they will, this, this illness will get into these kinds of facilities. Once it does, it's going to wreak havoc very quickly. And people who were sentenced to a couple years, 10 years, 20 years, are going to be receiving a death sentence instead. The U.S. jails more people than any other country. With 5% of the global population, it accounts for 25% of those behind bars worldwide. About half of those in federal prison are there as a result of drug-related offenses. Alabama's prison system at a breaking point. The state currently packs more than 24,000 inmates into a system designed to house about half that number. Prisons, jails, detention centers are all very conducive to the spread of infectious disease for a number of reasons. One of the most obvious reasons is that they tend to be crowded. You often have people living in dormitories, which is not like what you think of when you think of a college dormitory. It's often a big room with lots of beds in rows, one next to the other, sometimes bunk beds. So you've got tens 20s, hundreds of people in a single room sharing the same air, sharing the same bathroom facilities, sharing the same surfaces. Uh, You also have situations where people can't take the kinds of precautions that we're all now being told to take, where they isolate themselves from each other. If you live in a facility where you've got a bed and that's the only personal space you've got, then that's not really keeping you separate from anyone else. 
They also tend to have a lot of people who are not in particularly good health. Coming from the community, they're not in good health, but also living in a prison for a long time generally leads to pretty poor health outcomes. Additionally, the health care is not usually very good in correctional facilities. And unfortunately, sanitation and hygiene aren't good. Often people don't have enough soap. Often they don't have cleaning supplies for their you know, personal areas. They may not have enough hygiene supplies and they may not have enough towels. There's a lot of those kinds of issues that make it very hard to control the spread of an infectious disease once it gets into any kind of detention or correctional facility. And a lot of these people that we're seeing now are people who were sentenced in the 1990s and early 2000s under the many three strikes laws or the habitual offender laws that put people into prison for extremely long time periods. Today, the bickering stops. The era of excuses is over. The law-abiding citizens of our country have made their voices heard. Never again should Washington put politics and party above law and order. From this day forward, let us put partisanship behind us and let us go forward, Democrats, Republicans, and independents, law enforcement, community leaders, ordinary citizens, let us roll up our sleeves to roll back this awful tide of violence and reduce crime in our country. We have the tools now. Let us get about the business of using them. Whether it's life or 99 years, these are people who have been in for a long time and whose bodies are really broken down as a result of it. This crisis is going to show us a lot of things about our criminal justice system. Hopefully we'll be learning whether it is possible to use things like medical furlough more broadly and what the effects of doing that will be. We also should be looking at, you know, how are we spending our dollars? Even though correctional facilities are horrific places that are themselves underfunded, they're still incredibly costly to the society. Is locking people away in a prison for decades the best way to keep people safe? I would say no. We need to think through you know, how we are providing mental health care in the community, what we're doing as far as substance abuse treatment. We need to be really carefully thinking through. This is a costly way to try to keep our society safe, and it does not appear to be doing a good job of keeping our society safe. So we should think through, is there some better way to do this? We end today's show looking at a new project called the Eviction Lab that looked at more than 80 million eviction records going back to 2000 and revealed in 2016 alone there were nearly four evictions filed every minute. More than 6,300 Americans who are evicted every day. Studies show being thrown out of one's home can lead to a host of other problems including poor health, depression, job loss, shattered childhoods. Many families in America, through no fault of their own, are incredibly close to eviction already. So just to provide a little bit of background, because of sort of the mix of stagnant wages and declining homeownership rates and rising rents, 
about one out of five renters are paying over half their income in housing. Our database has seen about 3.6 million eviction filings annually. So in a month like March, these filing rates vary from month to month. We estimate that we'll see about an average of 300,000 eviction filings. But in a month like this particular month where unemployment is skyrocketing in response to the coronavirus pandemic, we anticipate that the experience of housing insecurity will increase significantly. Governor Newsom says the number of unemployment benefit applications, look at that, has gone up from just 2,000 a day to 80,000 a day. The impact really hitting home. Take a look at these staggering numbers just into the newsroom. Unemployment claims in Illinois for the last two days, more than 41,000. Eviction has a huge and lasting impact on the individual in question. It also has an impact on the landlord, depending on the type of landlord that we're talking about. What we know from the data is that eviction impacts physical and mental health. It impacts a household's credit. It impacts, we call it sort of the scarlet E. It impacts a household's ability to find future rental housing. Those are sort of the, what we know based on past data. And in this particular moment, the implications of of being evicted are just so much greater in magnitude than even what we've seen in the past. So if someone were to get evicted today, they might end up in an eviction court where they could get sick, you know, from being in contact with other people or lawyers or judges in eviction court. If they became evicted, they might also end up in a homeless shelter where, you know, homeless shelters are an important part of our safety net, but they're not set up to uh, to support social distancing the way that the CDC is currently recommending. There are both the immediate effects of, of eviction under normal circumstances, and we are living in unprecedented times at the moment when those effects are even greater than normal. As a caveat, I need to sort of state that I'm sort of speaking on behalf of myself and that We aren't lobbyists and can't lobby, but our recommendations are informed by the data that we are collecting at the lab. So across the United States, over the past several weeks, we have seen several policies pop up at the local, state, and federal level. There is a new push to stop evictions statewide during the coronavirus pandemic. Several big cities are in the process right now of putting a moratorium on eviction, some by emergency action. First, we've seen a wave of moratoriums on eviction, meaning that state and local governments are pausing eviction proceedings for the time being. These vary a lot from jurisdiction to jurisdiction. So we've seen this in New York, in Boston, in Miami, in California, and then in many other cities, states, and localities across the country. In addition to that, the federal government through Department of Housing and Urban Development also issued a moratorium on foreclosures. I'm also announcing that the Department of Housing and Urban Development is providing immediate relief to renters and homeowners by suspending all foreclosures and evictions until the end of April. And that relates specifically to loans that have been backed by the U.S. government. So that, that will affect about 28 million homeowners. But again, that affects homeowners, not renters. So right now, what we are actively 
watching and encouraging people to do is like that was now is the time if you're at home social distancing you know think about calling your representatives and sort of what we can do to ensure that we are supporting our most vulnerable neighbors and community members and really thinking about this is a, an unprecedented moment in American history like what are our human rights and what should they be and sort of how can we push for those rights and changes moving forward, both within the context of this pandemic and beyond it. Like, should it really be like that the people should be evicted from their homes, for example? Is there another way that we can tackle that socially as a society? So we characterize the housing crisis as an epidemic in itself, even before the coronavirus came onto the scene, because 44 million Americans rent and a third of the workforce is making less than $15 an hour. So when we see that rents are rising, but that these incomes are stagnant, and in addition to that, many people lost their homes during the 2008 crisis and were pushed onto the rental market. So now there are more and more families looking for fewer and fewer affordable rentals and that sort of thing, it makes it very difficult for people to find a safe, affordable place to live and to also not be pushed to the brink financially when a financial emergency, a job loss, a health emergency comes up in people's lives. This health crisis that we're currently facing is really showing the gaping holes in our social safety net in the United States. And I think it's a moment for us to pause and think through, do we need paid family and medical leave? Do we need broader access to healthcare in America? Do we need broader housing supports, particularly for low-income, middle-income Americans and aging Americans who are on fixed incomes? So we are concerned and watching and trying to use our data to inform the response to the current pandemic and hope that this is an opportunity for us to, to learn as a society about how to support each other better. We've just heard clips today, starting with Deep Background, explaining the logistical reasons why prisons are a coronavirus time bomb. Democracy Now! discussed the proposal to release all nonviolent detainees from immigrant detention centers. Newsbeat, in two parts, broke down the ongoing disaster of pandemic spread behind bars. The Weeds looked at the confluence of Trump's coronavirus immigration response and all the horrible stuff he's always wanted to do anyway. Off-Kilter, in two parts, first discussed the too-slow process being followed for releasing prisoners, and second, the policy changes we need to have at ICE. 
The United States of Anxiety heard some dispatches from people trapped in the incarceration system, and social distance highlighted the fundamental contradictions within a system designed to pack people together in an age of social distancing. To hear all of our bonus content, which also includes more voicemails and commentary from myself as well as Amanda, plus ad-free versions of every regular episode, sign up as a patron of the show at patreon.com slash bestofleft. And now... We'll hear from you. Hey, Jay, it's Urkel calling in for the whopping third time in 10 years. But um, I'm glad that uh, I'm listening to the uh, most recent episode for me. This Today's April 5th. Happy First Contact Day. Um, now, I'm glad you had that caller bringing up basically having reverse seasonal affective disorder. That's That's one name I've heard for it. I've never been officially diagnosed, but I do have all the signs of having that. Uh, apparently, like 10%, something like 10% of seasonal affective disorder people get it, get it during the summer instead of the winter, and sometimes referred to as reverse seasonal affective disorder or summer seasonal affective disorder. But, you know, I'm, I'm honestly glad that there are more people talking about it, because I think some people honestly don't think it exists. I think some people, most people, just inherently equate summer with happiness. I mean, certainly a lot of our pop music does that. I mean, the Beach Boys pretty much built their entire career on that. But um, not really related to the topic of the episode <laughs> that the voicemail was in, but, you know, I'm, I'm still glad that it's a thing that more people are talking about. Now, at least I hope more people will talk about it now that you've had that caller and now that you've had me calling in about it. All right, now, call you again about five or six years. Bye. Hey, Jay and Amanda, this is Annie from Florida. Um, I'm calling about your uh, little bonus episode that you released about stoicism and negative visualization. The best piece of advice that anyone has ever, ever given me was my sixth grade English teacher named Mrs. Hurst. And I did not appreciate her at the time. And I did not appreciate this advice at the time because I was like 11. But she said that in every stage of life, you have to always be thinking that this too shall pass. That in the bad times, it will pass. You will weather the storm. You know, you'll get out of it eventually. Things cannot continue to be this bad forever. But also in the good times, this too shall pass. Are you making good money right now? Cool. That might not be there forever. You need to set some aside for the future. You know, do you have, are you in like really good relationship? Well, you need to nurture that because it may not be there forever. It may not you know, you need to appreciate your loved ones while you have them because you may not be in the situation forever. It's something that I think of a lot when I'm in times of trouble and I need to think of it more when I'm in happy times too because it would lead me to appreciate what I have more. But um, it was just the best piece of advice ever. And you know what? I think Mrs. Hurst was a little bit of a closet stoic. I don't think she... um may have called herself that. I don't think she knew about the philosophy, the uh, formal philosophy of what she was suggesting. But um, yeah, it seems very, very similar to what y'all were talking about, about neg negative visualization. 
Uh, thanks. Bye. Thanks for listening, everyone. Thanks to our production assistant, Joel McKean, who helps gather clips to make this show possible. Thanks to Amanda Hoffman for all of her work on our social media outlets and activism segments. And thanks to all those who called into the voicemail line. If you'd like to leave a comment or question of your own to be played on the show, you can send us a voice memo by email or simply record a message at 202-999-3991. First of all, uh, good to hear from you, Arkle. Uh, try to have it not be so long and don't wait five years before you call in again. Let's, uh, you know, baby steps. Let's, let's try for, uh, each leap year. Let's try to hear from you each leap year. See how that goes. Uh, second of all about, um, this too shall pass. You know, I, I totally agreed. Excellent advice. And it, it's, it's very similar. It reminds me of during our stoicism conversation, Amanda brought up, uh, gratitude journals very much along the same lines. And what I realize with all, all of these examples is that it really is that's it, it is negative visualization hidden in a different format. That's really what that is. Because, I mean, what is a gratitude journal other than a way to remind you of something that you have and appreciate? And then by showing gratitude for it, you naturally think, I'm glad I have this because the alternative is I didn't or wouldn't have it. It It is negative visualization, just sort of in reverse. So it's sort of the most effective way to feel the gratitude is to really feel the, the, the negative visualization of what it would be like to not have a thing or a trait or a person in your life or whatever the case may be. And there's a a classic example that I I used this on the show years ago. And I hesitate because I I don't want to be ableist. I don't want to go down that path and, and show something like uh, the ability to hear as being inherently better than being deaf. That's not uh, what I'm saying, but as podcast listeners, I was trying to think of something like what is something that we pretty much all universally have in common? The ability to hear. That's that's about the one thing I know for sure. And and so I use it as an example and can actually do it in, in sort of a as much of a non-ableist way as possible. So here's the visualization. Imagine what it would be like to not be able to hear, to go through life genuinely day after day uh, learning to cope with the inability to hear. Well, you know, at least for me, I think what you would realize is I could adapt to that. There's no reason to think that I would just live in a, you know, a life of misery. You know, you would adapt to it. It would, you, you'd learn sign language, you'd learn all the adaptive technologies that you may need. And then life, you know, your, your normal level of happiness would return and and life would go back to some version of normalcy so that sounds pretty good like and and you know the same could go for like some horrible uh, physical ailment you could lose a limb even and think well I'd, i'd go through this process of recovery and rehabilitation and i'd have to learn how to do things differently but there's no reason to think that i would live in constant misery because of this loss. And I, I would, I would sort of recover my normal sense of happiness and satisfaction. 
And then you come back to the present and realize, oh, great, that didn't happen. I actually do have the ability to hear all, all of my current limbs, you know, whatever the case may be. And, and that's what really heightens that sense of gratitude that, uh, th- that gratitude journals are supposed to make you feel, but doing, you know, like a 30 second deep mental negative visualization of the same concept, uh, I, I think heightens that experience even more. And then lastly, obviously we just have to address the elephant in the room disguised as a Democrat. Uh, the, the election has taken a turn. Bernie Sanders has dropped out. No one is opposing Joe Biden anymore. So here's how I can say what I have to say as succinctly as possible. Skip the conversation. I'm going to skip the conversation. I, I recommend you skip the conversation with anyone you may talk to about uh, how bad Joe Biden is, which he certainly is, uh, the ethics of you know, the eternal question of voting for the lesser of two evils. I say skip that conversation entirely and ask the question, what is your theory of change? Someone comes to you and you're having a conversation. I I just can't vote for him. He's terrible. He, I just, I can't give my vote to someone like that. I say your answer should be, okay, cool. I, I totally get that. So Tell me what your alternative theory of change is. How does your action of deciding to not vote for him take us closer to where you want to be? What is your theory of change? That is the only question that I can think of that I have ever heard of that is worthwhile to discuss in the wake of a primary campaign like the one we've just had this year, the one we had in 2016 debating over the pros and cons of a particular candidate or the the systemic structural problems with the Democratic Party and on and on. I mean, those are perfectly worthwhile conversations to have if you're talking about a theory of change to change those things. How do you change the internal structures of the Democratic Party? I'd be happy to have that conversation. But if you're having a conversation about voting, a very specific election in a very specific year under a very specific set of circumstances, then the vote requires a very specific theory of change. Reforming the Democratic Party is a different project with a different theory of change. Your vote has to have a theory of change attached to it. And if it doesn't, then I don't think you have a leg to stand on. So the only theories of change I have basically heard are yeah, you know, you got to vote for the lesser of two evils because you get less evil. It's not that complicated. And the other is, no, things are so bad, we need to burn everything to the ground. Okay, fair, that, that's a fair theory of change. Let's just work through that a little bit. Um, first of all, if, if you want to burn this metaphorical house to the ground, are you inside the house or are you outside the house? Because that changes my perspective on your ethics. If you're someone who's really on the front lines of the damage that the country is causing and, and that the conservative wings of both parties uh, are, are causing, if you're on the front lines of that damage and you say, let's burn it down, I can probably respect that position. If you are not on the front lines, you're standing outside the house looking in saying, now nah, we got to burn it down. Well, that's a, that's a different calculation altogether. As someone who is unquestionably 
uh, standing outside the house. <laughs> the, the uh, you know, I am I'm not on the front lines. I'm not on any front line of any damage being done by the terrible poly- policies of either the Democratic or Rep- Republican parties. I I cannot take the position to burn it all down and start fresh or rebuild from the ashes or undo the empire or anything like that because it would do too much damage to too many people and I wouldn't even be one of those people. I can't take that ethical stance. So as I uh, promised to say in every episode, but then the coronavirus distracted me. If you want to move toward a more just society, vote with the most vulnerable communities and tell everyone else to do the same. As always, keep the comments coming in at 202-999-3991, or you can just email me a voice memo if you prefer. That is going to be it for today. Thanks to everyone for listening. Thanks to those who support the show by becoming a member or making donations of any size at patreon.com slash bestofleft. That is absolutely how the program survives. Of course, everyone can support the show just by telling everyone you know about it and leaving us glowing reviews on Apple Podcasts and Facebook to help others find the show. For details on the show itself, including links to all of the sources and music used in this and every episode, all that information can always be found in the show notes on the blog and likely right on the device you're using to listen. So coming to you from far outside the conventional wisdom of Washington, D.C., my name is Jay, and this has been the Best of the Left podcast, coming to you twice weekly, thanks entirely to the members and donors to the show from bestoftheleft.com. And now to wrap up with everyone's favorite news by Limerick, uh, following up on what I was just uh, talking about, at Liberix, one of my favorite poets putting out limericks on Twitter, uh, has some comments on Bernie Sanders dropping out of the race, and uh, admittedly in in a slightly different than usual limerick format. Bernard has a liberal view. His passionate backers do too. And if they say no to voting for Joe there's a significant risk that Donald Trump will be reelected, which will guarantee that the progressive policies for which Bernie advocates will have no chance of being enacted not only in the near term, but possibly for generations. An unfettered lame duck Trump will continue his assault on health care, undo recent strides in LGBTQ plus rights, take our nation and the planet beyond the point of no return with respect to climate change, continue the GOP's... Con- continue the GOP's campaign of voter suppression, and perhaps, most importantly, stack the federal courts with young, deeply unqualified MAGA judges who will ensure that any attempts to enact progressive policies will be defeated for decades to come. If you believe, as I do, that America would be a better, more prosperous, more just nation if Bernie's vision were a reality, then the possibility of a second Trump term should be an unfathomably frightful prospect. Biden may not be a perfect progressive candidate, and he may be more moderate than these times truly demand. But if he does not prevail in November, the damage that Trump will inflict on the progressive movement that Bernie has led so remarkably will, simply put, be far too severe to undo. (laughs) 